gets me excited about communion tonight. Well, we are drawing to the close of our study in the Gospel of Mark, and we come tonight to the crucifixion of the Son of God. Um, this whole purpose, this is the whole purpose why Jesus came. We're coming to Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 47. Um, the whole reason Jesus came is to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Mark opens his gospel with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Mark takes us on a journey looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus culminating in his death on the cross tonight. And it's here, moments after his death, that a human being confesses for the first time what only Mark and God himself have said up until this point about Jesus. The centurion confesses, surely this man was the Son of God. Looking at the cross can be very difficult for us, uh, not just because of the pain and the horror that we encounter, but because we're so used to it. It's become so commonplace um, to us that it's lost its impact. Uh, so we're going to turn to our text this evening, and we're going to ask God to help us give us fresh eyes, fresh ears of faith that we might proclaim with the centurion in faith of the God who suffers and dies for his people that we might know life. Surely this man was the son of God. Please read along with me God's word. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Some ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. 
Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your text this evening and we come to encountering the death of your son, we ask that you would work in our lives, in our hearts, in our ears. Help us to see you this evening. Give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to encounter the living God this evening. We are numb to this story Uh, This is a hard story to to look at, to ponder. We have many questions and doubts. Uh, Father, help us to see you this evening, to see your love for us, your love demonstrated for us, and Jesus staying on the cross for us, being forsaken by you, and that veil torn in two that we might come to you and know you and experience your love and your presence that will never leave us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, We're going to walk through this familiar text, kind of go through verse by verse, and pull out some of the things that uh, Mark wants to draw our attention to. Um, The reason we're doing that uh, is because usually when we study the cross, we look at kind of like just one aspect really quickly on Good Friday of the cross, and it's a really brief homily typically. Um, But we're going to kind of sit in this for a little while because it's just an awesome opportunity to see this. And none of us are first century Jews, and so we don't necessarily know all the things that Mark is kind of alluding to and talking about. So we're just going to walk through the text uh, really quickly, hopefully. And then we're going to sit and we're going to look at the forsakenness of Jesus, Uh, for us and the temple curtain torn in two, making a way for us to be brought into the presence of God this evening. Uh, The crucifixion, it's not an accident of human history. Um, Jesus isn't just a helpless victim um, of his circumstances. This is the whole reason, this chapter, this, this scene is the whole reason that Jesus comes in the first place. This is a divine appointment. And Mark is more concerned with the fulfillment of scripture here uh, than he is of giving us all the gory details of the cross. So let's just jump in. Verse 21, we see Simon from Cyrene, uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they, the Roman soldiers, forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Why does Mark include this detail? Uh, The only reason Mark includes any details in his gospel at all is because they're true. Because it happened. Um, These men, Alexander and Rufus, uh, they must have been well known to Mark's original audience. And the reason he includes them is so that the people hearing this for the first time could go talk to them. Um, That's why Mark includes this. So these men must have been well known. But remember, all the disciples have left Jesus at this point. They fled from him. They've abandoned him. And so it's customary for the person being crucified to carry their cross beam with them uh, from the jail cell to the cross. But Jesus is apparently so weakened and so despondent and broken from this sleepless night, from the floggings and the violence and the lashings that he's received, that this man Simon is forced to carry his cross for him. 
Now, you need to know that Simon isn't just a willing participant. He's not standing there volunteering, like, here, Jesus, let me carry your cross for you. But Mark includes this detail because he wants us to go back to Mark 8 and remember Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Simon here is a picture for us of true discipleship when all of Jesus' friends and disciples have abandoned him and have fled. And then verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is a hill outside the city walls of Jerusalem where those coming in for Passover, coming into the city, they would have seen these crucifixions. Um, Rome used this heinous and this cruel and this embarrassing form of execution uh, as a deterrent to would-be insurrectionists and criminals. They were billboards, if you will, that, that said in a way, don't mess with Rome. That's what they were there for. And then Mark begins uh, to draw on several passages from the Older Testament to show the fulfillment of all that Jesus is enduring. Uh, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This points us back to Psalm 69, verse 21, when David says, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. But why doesn't Jesus drink it? Jesus said, remember in Mark 14, 25, truly I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus rejects this offer to dull the pain, to extend his suffering on the cross because the only cup that he's going to drink this day is the cup of God's wrath that's currently being poured out for him. And he intends to drink it to the dregs with his full faculties intact for his people. And then in verse 24, Mark begins to repeatedly reference Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament by David that describes one who's suffering unjustly. And Mark points to it two times in this verse. First, we read just simply, they crucified him. Mark doesn't go into the gory details for us. Uh, his readers would have known what that meant. Um, but he says it succinctly here. And they crucified him, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 16, which says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then secondly, it says, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. That's exactly what Psalm twenty-two eighteen says. And then verse 25, it's nine in the morning uh, when they crucified him. And verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now it's customary for those being crucified to have the reason for their crucifixion either affixed to the cross above them or hung around their neck. But here we see the reason Jesus dies according to Rome is because he's an enemy of the state convicted of high treason. He's executed as a political threat, the thing that he distanced himself from at every chance he got during his life and ministry. But even though this is being used to mock him, it's really true. Mark is using irony here to show us Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. He's the one who created everything, and this cross doesn't bring an end to his alleged grasp for power. It's the throne on which he begins his reign and the throne through which his kingdom is established. And then, according to Isaiah 53, uh, verse, verse 12, Jesus was counted among the rebels, as Mark tells us in verse 27. It says, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Mark goes to this, like, these cumbersome lengths here. He could just say Jesus was crucified with, in between two robbers. 
but he says it and spells it out for us because he's wanting us to remember Mark chapter 10, the conversation between Jesus and James and John, where James and John come to Jesus and they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus replies to them, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus' glory comes through this cross and James and John are nowhere to be found. They've abandoned Jesus, but this had to happen so that according to Isaiah 53, it would be fulfilled that Jesus would be counted among the rebels so he could be numbered with the transgressors so that he could save the sins of many. And then we come to these string of insults and these violent verbal attacks that are placed on Jesus, fulfilling Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, which read, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. It's exactly what's happening in this passage in verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross. Save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. And then we read at the end there that the, those crucified with Jesus also hurled insults at him. Jesus is mocked by everyone in this story. The crowds, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, even those hanging up there with him. They think that if he's going to be able to save anyone, as he alleges, he has to be able to save himself. His miracles, his healings, his saving of people, his bringing people back to life from dead, up until now, it wasn't enough for them. They need one more sign. But the very thing that they're asking him to do to come down from the cross is the one thing that Jesus cannot and Jesus will not do. Because then the purpose for his coming, his giving a life, his life as a ransom for many, it couldn't be accomplished. And so Jesus stays on the cross. He demonstrates his power, his faithfulness to his father, his obedience to the father. And it's because of his love for us. It's because of his love for you. As Hebrews 12.2, as we read earlier, it says it's for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And that joy, friends, it's you. It's you who are trusting in him. It's you being rescued from death and sin, being brought back into his family through his sacrifice, through his death and resurrection for us. All around Jesus, everyone blasphemes him and they mock him. But what they don't see is that they're actually guilty of the very thing that Jesus is being executed for. He's being executed for blaspheming against God and that's exactly what they're doing here in this moment. What they're saying here in their mocking is you couldn't really be God's son here. You couldn't really be the king. Jesus, you couldn't, God couldn't be with you because he doesn't work through weakness like this. He doesn't work through death like this. If you really were the king, we wouldn't be able to stab you and poke at you and hurt you like we are doing right now. God couldn't be using your death and your shame for good. It's just not the way it works. But Mark and we know better. Mark uses irony here again in the voice of the mockers to show us what's really happening. God uses the weak 
God uses the small, the insignificant to shame the wise and the proud, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. And when we find ourselves facing the evil that this world throws at us, the painful, the unjust, the suffering and the difficulty of this world, when we think God has left us and he's nowhere to be found, we need to remember that this is the God that we serve, the God that brings life from death, that God works sometimes in just crazy and mysterious ways to achieve his purposes. Because the most tragic, horrific, unjust moment in human history is actually the greatest moment in the history of the world, in the history of God's people. The death of the Son of God is what God uses to bring life and redemption, and renewal, and reconciliation, and resurrection to his people, and to this world. And so if God isn't absent, and he's really at work in this moment, this horrifying, terrible moment on the cross, then he is at work too in our lives when we face the darkness, when we face the moments where we feel like God has abandoned us, he hasn't, and we're going to get to that in a few moments, but all is not lost here. There is hope. And then we come to verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This isn't an eclipse. Some have tried to explain it with uh, just natural circumstances. We know that it's not an eclipse because eclipses don't last for three hours. Uh, But also an eclipse would have been impossible at this point because it occurs during Passover, which is a full moon, and eclipses don't happen during full moons. So there isn't a natural explanation here. This is supernatural darkness. So why does, why does it become dark? Well, Amos chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, And in that day, Amos writes, This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. What day is Moses talking about here? He's talking about judgment day. And this is happening here in this moment. Jesus is enduring God's judgment. Jesus is enduring hell itself for us. Darkness also comes as a a moment of divine justice in Exodus chapter 10 with the ninth plague. But that's what's happening here. There's divine justice is happening here in this darkness. Jesus is on the cross. He's taking the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin and our rebellion against God. And God's presence is removed from Jesus in this moment. And so darkness comes over this place until Jesus breathes his last. And then Jesus cries out, quoting the opening verses of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're gonna come back to this and talk about this in a moment. But again, some think they're, he's calling for Elijah. So they go and they get a sponge filled with wine vinegar. Jesus doesn't take it. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. And in verse 37, Jesus, the Son of God, dies. And immediately, Mark leaves the scene. Verse 38, he leaves the crucifixion. He transports us to the temple where the 60-foot, thick like a wall curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy of holies is torn in two from top to bottom. It's torn in two from top to bottom so that we don't miss who the person tearing the temple curtain is, who, who it is that's, that's tearing it in half. It can only be God himself here doing this. And then Mark transports us back to the cross, verse 39, and then we get the climax of the book of Mark here. 
the centurion who's in charge of Jesus' execution, becomes the first human being to confess Jesus as the son of God. It's the most amazing thing that happens. This crucifixion scene then, it closes with this group of women who followed and they've ministered to Jesus during his ministry and they're watching at a distance. So Jesus is, is dead on the cross and then we come to verse 42. We find that it's preparation day. That means it's the day before the Sabbath and so that means time's running out if Jesus is gonna be buried before evening falls because he can't be buried on the Sabbath according to Jewish customs. So here enters Joseph of Arimathea. He's a wealthy man. How do we know that? The other gospels tell us that but here there are hints. He owns a tomb. Most people didn't own tombs then. And we read he's a prominent member of the council. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin that just condemned Jesus to death for his blasphemy. And we read that, Jesus, that Joseph was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So this combined with the other gospel accounts, they help us see that, that Joseph was really a, a secret follower of Jesus that he and Nicodemus were, were these secret followers of Jesus. And so Joseph risks everything when he goes boldly to ask Pilate for Jesus' body. He risks his reputation. He risks his safety. He risks his own life. And he identifies with Jesus in his death, shows his allegiance to him. And he doesn't do it in secret anymore. He goes boldly to Pilate to ask him for Jesus' body. Why does he do that? Because in that day, people who were crucified, they left their bodies up to be, continue to be humiliated until through, through their death. They would either be left up to just rot or they'd be left up to have birds and animals come scavenge them. And if they were buried, they were just thrown in a mass grave. And so Joseph goes boldly to ask Pilate because only the magistrate could, could allow a body to go be buried. And so he goes, Pilate is surprised. We don't understand why that is. It's because Pilate um, knows that people who are crucified, they usually last sometimes two to three days on the cross. That's why the execution was so excruciating and so humiliating and so awful. And he's shocked and surprised that this Jesus is already dead. And so he calls for the centurion. The centurion comes and he affirms uh, that Jesus is dead. So Joseph goes. He, he gets Jesus off the cross. He wraps him in linen that he bought. And the, he places him in the tomb, tomb. And they roll the stone over to cover the entrance. And then we read about these women that are there. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's going to be important next week when we come to the resurrection. But they were witnesses not only to Jesus' death, but witnesses to where he was laid. There could be no confusion about which tomb he was placed in. And then the tomb, the significance of that. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So Mark is just rich with these Old Testament allusions and fulfillments here. Um, and, and showing us in these few verses, all that's happening because the scriptures must be fulfilled, Jesus said. And that's what's happening here in this passage. So we've kind of quickly just run through, given us a baseline. Um, I was your tour guide for that, and so I'm stepping off of the tour now. And we're going to just look, hopefully really quickly, at the forsakenness of Jesus for us and the barrier of the temple being torn in two so that we could enter into God's presence. So first, the forsakenness of Jesus. 
The word forsaken, it's one of the worst words um, in all of, of human language. You know, throughout scripture, God's people repeatedly cry out, do not forsake us, God. And we, deep down, we don't want to be forsaken either. We don't want to be forgotten. That's why it hurts so badly when we are, when we're not invited to the party, when our friends or our family or those really close to us forget about us. But it's also why we work so hard to not be forgotten. It's why we work so hard to leave a legacy. It's why we work ourselves to the point of exhaustion, uh, whether it's with school or with our kids or with our jobs or in our homes. It's, it's why we feel like we need to have it all together and get all that life has to offer because we don't want it to forget us. And many of us, even though we act like everything is okay, we often feel forgotten. We often feel unknown and alone. And that loneliness is bitter. And it makes us sad and it makes us angry. And it can cause us to continue to further isolate ourselves by hiding. Either in making ourselves really busy with doing good things or with getting, getting caught up in our addictions. But these things will leave us more empty and more alone. And this is where our depression really sets in. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be forgotten. We don't want to be forsaken. I've seen this in my own family with... Um, with Ella when she was really little. One day um, I came home from work and Megan and Ella and I were home alone and I stepped outside the front door to walk um, to the middle of the street to get our mail and Ella came running to the door panicked and screaming and crying and banging on the door and screaming, Daddy, no! And she was just, just unhinged because she thought I was leaving her. You know, Megan took her outside to show her, no, he just went to get the mail. Um, he's not going anywhere. But it was awful to see that Ella even thought that I was leaving her, that she thought that I could leave her. I could never leave her. And it made me so sad because she thought that's what was happening in this moment. I was just going to get the mail. I wasn't going anywhere. But that's what she thought. She thought she was being forsaken in that moment. But that's not what Jesus is experiencing here on the cross. The one who had perfect fellowship, the one who had a perfect relationship with the Father from eternity past, from the creation of the world from before that, sharing in God's presence and glory forever. The one who said, the Father loves me and I remain in his love. The one of whom the, the God said about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the one who continually found rest and peace and joy and comfort in the presence of his father, the one who never did anything wrong, the one who found his joy in only doing the will of his father, the one who never sinned, the one who only did that which was pleasing and holy and loving. This one now is hanging from the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, unlike Ella in that story, actually experiences being forsaken. He looks at the door and his father is not standing in the yard waiting for him. He pounds on the window and he knows what it means to be truly abandoned. And so we have to ask the question, why is he forsaken on the cross? The short answer is for us. It's for you. It's so that you could be his Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, um, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
We know from Romans 6, 23, that the wages for sin is death. There is a penalty. There is a curse for sin. It has to be dealt with. It can't be ignored. It can't be brushed aside. It can't be overlooked. So Jesus on the cross becomes our sin and takes the wages for it. He became our rebellion there. The things that we brush off that we think, oh, that's just not that big of a deal. The things that are hidden from other people that we keep in secret, the things that are hidden from ourselves, he becomes those things on the cross. Luther says it this way. He says, he became the greatest sinner there ever was. Jesus on the cross in this moment becomes the greatest thief, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest robber, the greatest desecrator and blasphemer and fill in the blank. He became those things so that on the cross, he could save you, so that you could, he could take your place, so that you could be transported to his love, to God's love and his mercy, to be given all that is true about Jesus, all of his goodness, all of his love, all of his mercy, so that those things could become true of you. And in that moment, because Jesus has become all of our sin, God turns his face away from him. Jesus goes from being son to sin. He doesn't cry out, Abba, Father, as he did last week, as he's done so many times. He cries out to, to God, my God, my God. What's amazing is Jesus is still showing great obedience here that despite his intimate relationship with his father being severed in this moment, he's still calling God as the covenant God, the one who's faithful to keep his promises. Jesus becomes my sin on the cross and he becomes your sin. And when he cries out, there's no answer. There's no encouragement. There's no reassurance, there's no grace, there's no favor, there's no comfort extended to him. Jesus is no longer the beloved son of God in this moment with whom God is well pleased. He is our sin, he is the cursed one. He's vile and foul and repulsive. But Jesus isn't surprised by this. He knows this is what he came for. He knows this is what he was headed to. And he's obedient to his father by staying there and becoming that for us because of his love for you. This cry is because Jesus is bearing the full weight of God's wrath towards sin for you and for me. The weight from which we, when we come to Jesus in faith and repentance, we're freed from now. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I never have to utter those words. Jesus has God turn his face away from him in this moment on the cross so that God could turn his face towards you. So that when you come to him in faith, he can turn towards you and he can say, my son, my daughter, with you I am well pleased. You have all of my favor, all of my love because I've turned my face away from my son and I've turned it and set my eyes upon you. So even in the midst of our depressions, even in the midst of our anxieties and our fears and our failures and our feeling abandoned by God, Jesus's cry on the cross ensures to us that we never need to make that cry because if we're his, we have all of his love and all of his affection poured out on us. We see the forsakenness of Jesus here, but now let's turn and close by looking at 
um, the temple curtain being torn in two. Here, I want us to see the connection between verses 37 to 39 and the implications that these three events um, and these three verses have on one another and on us today. Um, What we need to know is there's a barrier separating us from God, a barrier that's separating God from his people. It started back in the garden when Adam and Eve fell and they sinned. They're cast out of the garden, which means they're cast out of God's presence. And there's a sword that's placed between them and God as a barrier because they don't have the same access to him anymore. And then when God later establishes the sacrificial system that we don't really understand, the reason God establishes it is because he wants to move into town with his people. But he can't fully because because sinful, broken people can't be in God's full presence without being consumed by it. And so he has to set up the sacrificial system so that he could be with us, so that he could draw near and be with his people. And so that's why God sets up the sacrificial system. And then he sets up the temple here um, so that we can have complete access to him. So God sets up this way uh, in the temple with the most holy place. Um, This is the place at a tiny garden of Eden, if you will, where God's face, where God's presence dwells. And it's separated from the holy place in the temple with this big, heavy, 60-foot wall-like curtain. And this curtain is this visible reminder that we're still separated from God's presence. And access to it only comes once a year on the holiest of days, on the Day of Atonement, by the holiest person, the high priest, and he has to go in to make a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. Because if access to God was going to happen, there had to be blood shed to pay for the sin of God's people. And so our sin, our brokenness, our failures to measure up, our missing the mark, our our being twisted and distorted from what we were originally built for in the garden, it's created this barrier between us and God. And if we're ever going to enjoy his presence again, it has to be dealt with. And it has to be dealt with by God because you and I cannot overcome that barrier by ourselves. Someone else needs to step in and someone else needs to remove it. And what we see here in this passage is God himself removes it. Verse 37 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And Mark transports us to ver- in verse 38 from the crucifixion to the temple, like we said. And we see that the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Why does the curtain tear? Because the final blood sacrifice has been made. When Jesus breathed his last, the true high priest, Jesus himself, went into the temple and his perfect sacrifice by his blood, by his death, rendered all other sacrifices irrelevant and useless. His death on the cross was the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices, and it was once for all. And because of his sacrifice, the curtain separating us from God is now torn in two. Jesus, the son of God, is ripped apart so that the barrier separating God and us would be ripped apart, opening the way so that we could be with him, so that we could enjoy his full presence without being torn apart ourselves. And God's presence, which because of sin was at one time fatal for God's people, now 
It can be enjoyed by everyone and anyone who come to him in faith. It, Jesus has opened a way for people to come and to draw near to him without distinction. It's for outsiders. It's for those who don't belong. It's for sinners. It's for God's enemies. It's for those people who have no business coming to God to be welcomed, to be brought near, to be forgiven, and to be loved and renewed. How do we know that? The very next verse, verse 39 tells us, Jesus breathes his last and dies, the curtains torn apart, and what's the immediate result? The centurion who stood facing Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, saw the way he died, and exclaims, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus dies, and this man sees the way that he dies, and he professes faith in him. And Mark transports us, as we said, back to the temple to show us that what aspect is finished. Um, John tells us the last words of Jesus before he dies is he yells, it is finished. And so the thing that's finished is that the sacrificial system is finished. God has paid for your sin in this moment. All of it, past, present, future. And not just your sin, but the sin of the whole world, Scripture tells us. And Jesus' sacrifice and paying completely for our sin removes the barrier that existed between us and God. No human being had ever uttered these words that Jesus is the Son of God up until this point. And in the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, and then this man says, this is, surely this was the Son of God. And an outsider, a Roman centurion, someone who should not belong at all, someone who doesn't understand fully what's going on, who, is, who has killed people, who have, many have died at his hand, a Gentile, and a, a true outsider is the first person to exclaim, truly, this is the Son of God. And this is where we enter the story. This is who we are. We are with the centurion here. We're not, many of us, we're not Jewish people by birth. We're pagan Gentiles. Uh, We're outsiders. We really don't belong here. But now that the curtain is torn, we do. The curtain has torn and we are welcomed. The people who should understand don't and the people who shouldn't understand do. And the centurion's question or the centurion's uh, confession, it comes, and it's, now it's screaming at us. Anyone can come. You can come. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've been. It doesn't matter what sin has been done to you or by you or through you. None of it matters anymore because Jesus has paid for it here. Your past Your sin, your failure, it cannot keep you from drawing near to this one. Jesus' death has opened up access to God. Your family, your history, your successes, your, your failures, they're not what grant you audience with the God of the universe. They're not what grant you his favor. His favor. Only Jesus does that, and he does it here in this moment. He does it when he breathes his last and he dies on the cross for you. He's endured all of the punishment God has to give for our sin. There's none left for you now. It's been exhausted on Jesus. 
Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus takes it all in this moment. And Mark closes this way to invite us all to confess with the centurion, Surely this is the Son of God. You can come tonight with the nothing that you have to offer, trusting that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for you on the cross, and you can confess in faith, and you can be welcomed, and you can receive the deepest, most intimate relationship with the presence of God because of his love for you. The one who would sacrifice his own son so that you could be his, because he couldn't imagine spending eternity without you, has died for you, So tonight, draw near to this God. That's why we're going to come to this table. What's stopping you from doing that? Jesus' death has given you complete access to God. His love for you is why he was forsaken. It's why he died. It's why the curtain was torn, so that you could draw near to him and know his love. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy, for your goodness to us. We thank you that through your sacrifice, we are able to draw near now. Give us the faith to enter in. Uh, We thank you for Jesus being forsaken on the cross for us, for Jesus ripping the curtain in two so that we could come in and know your full presence and your full love and your full acceptance and forgiveness and transformation. We need that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.